Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dave Ansell. And we begin with a look at some of this week's top science stories. A unique astronomical event, an incredibly bright and long-lived burst of gamma rays, was probably the result of a black hole destroying a star, according to research published in the journal Science this week. On the 28th of March this year, NASA's SWIFT satellite observed a bright flash of gamma rays emanating from a distant galaxy around 3.8 billion light-years away. Gamma ray bursts like this are associated with some of the most energetic and destructive events in our universe, such as the supernova and collapse of a massive star down into a black hole or into a neutron star. This flash, which is now known by the catchy name of SW1644 plus 57, was quite unusual. Normal gamma ray bursts are very intense but very short-lived, and they're followed by an afterglow of lower intensity emission. This event, though, continued for weeks, outlasting any previous known burst, and rather than fading away quietly, it was followed by a number of less intense bursts of radiation, almost like an earthquake and its aftershocks. To determine exactly what caused this unique event, it was vital to determine whereabouts in the galaxy it had occurred. Andrew Levan and colleagues at Warwick University used subsequent observations taken by the Hubble Space Telescope and the Chandra X-ray Observatory to confirm that the event had taken place at the heart of the galaxy. This left one logical conclusion as to the cause of the event, that they had witnessed a star about the size of our sun being torn apart by a massive black hole. The enormous gravitational pull of a black hole at least a million times the mass of the sun would cause the star to initially distort into a banana shape before being ripped into a ring of material that would then rain down onto the black hole itself. Spinning black holes tend to radiate this energy away in two highly collimated beams, one from each pole, and this time the Earth just happened to fall right in the firing line of one of these beams. Dr Levan now hopes to look at historical data to find evidence of what we call off-axis events, where we're not in the firing line, and this should give us an idea of how rare these extraordinary events really are. That sounds like an absolutely incredibly violent event. Well, these gamma ray bursts are some of the brightest, some of the most intense things we see in the universe. And things like a supernova, as we know, it's it's an incredibly destructive event. You also get things called blazars, which which come from what are called active galactic nuclei. Now, this is usually where there's material raining in onto a black hole and it gets so heated up by this process that it gives out lots of radiation. But this is really in a class of its own because it's not just the effect of material raining into a black hole, but it's tearing a star apart. Brilliant. Well, my story this week is again about astronomical fireworks, but rather close to home. Comets. Now, comets are small astronomical bodies that mostly travel into our solar system from the far reaches of it. And as they move close to the sun, they heat up evaporating volatiles like carbon dioxide and water. And these then recondense and form this characteristic tail. They're actually quite difficult to study because although their tails can be enormous and you can actually see them with a naked eye, the actual comet is relatively small, only a few kilometres across. 
Um, when they're close to us, of course, they're surrounded by a cloud of particles which form their tail, which is a bit like trying to see them through a mist. There have been a couple of missions to comets in the past, and the most recent was the NASA Deep Impact mission, which first visited the comet Temple 1 in 2005, but as a bonus extra mission, because they had a bit of fuel left over, visited the relatively small and unpredictable comet Hartley 2. And this is a slightly unusual comet in that it's spinning in an unusual way. It's not just spinning about one axis, it's spinning about two, which indicates that there's something odd going on with it. It's also quite active. And so the mission went through and they've just finished analysing a large chunk of the data. They found that the comet looks like a giant kilometre-long dumbbell and the jets of gas are coming out of the ends, which is slightly odd to start with. The small end at the moment is slightly more active than the big end. And the amount of water compared to carbon dioxide appears to be lower at the small end than the big end. So this might very interestingly indicate that the comet wasn't uniform when it was created. Or it might indicate some interesting processes after that. But certainly if that was the first one, that says something really quite deep about comets and they're not quite as simple as we thought they were originally. They also saw a very pristine white ring around the middle of the dumbbell which indicates there's no dust on there and it's quite a new surface. And they think it's been created by stuff being thrown out from the ends, being trapped by the tiny amount of gravity on the comet and sort of redepositing in the middle. So this indicates that comets might be more active and varied than they thought before. There's still a lot to learn, isn't there, about the structure and the evolution of comets. The deep impact mission you mentioned earlier, what they actually did was crash something into a comet to try and throw up bits of the surface and see not only what actually comes out, but then subsequently see how that wound, as it were, heals, or if it heals at all, or if it just stays as this permanent crater. And also see actually what's in the surface, because normally um, what evaporates is the stuff which evaporates. And so if you smash something into it, you actually get a model, a picture of what's actually in there rather than what just happens to get kicked out naturally. So the iconic nickname of comets as being a dirty snowball actually doesn't really tell you quite how complicated they are. Indeed. Now, the Square Kilometre Array, or the SKA, is set to be a groundbreaking new radio telescope operating at a wide range of frequencies with as much as 50 times more sensitivity than any existing telescope of its kind. It should help us to answer some of the really big outstanding questions about our universe. Now, the headquarters will be based at the Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire, but the telescope itself is either going to be located in Australia or in South Africa. This week, Bernie Fanneroff, the project manager for the South African SKA bid, visited London and met up with our own Chris Smith. It'll be made up of two different kinds of what are called receptors. Most people will know what a satellite dish looks like. A satellite dish is really a mirror. It focuses radio waves from space onto a radio receiver. There'll be another kind of receptor, which is more like a fisheye lens. It sits on the ground. You don't steer it physically, you steer it electronically, but it sees almost all of the sky all the time. So the square kilometre array will be made up of a couple of thousand dishes and a thousand or so of these fisheye lenses, and the dishes will be spread out over about 3,000 kilometres, the fisheye lenses over a couple of hundred kilometres. They'll all be joined together with optical fibre, so they all look at the same thing at the same time. You feed the signals from all of these dishes and fisheye lenses together into one central computer, and you can process the data to make a picture of whatever it was that they were looking at. That must be one mega computer. 
Well, the estimates are that you'd have to have a computer running at exaflop speeds. Exaflop speeds is of the order of a thousand times faster than the fastest supercomputers now. The data transport would be several hundred terabits per second. So you're looking at a couple of hundred times more data traffic than you have through the entire World Wide Web at the present time. So it pushes a lot of different technological boundaries. So why South Africa? Well, first of all, we have an exceptionally good site. It's very quiet, radio quiet, in the sense that there's very little interference. We've been able to work with our signal broadcasters and our mobile phone operators and others to reduce even further any signals that there are. So it's a very quiet site. The physical characteristics are good. We have large flat areas. Temperatures and winds are, are benign. There's no extreme weather. And there's a lot of infrastructure already in place, so it's easy to put it down there. And it reduces the costs because the cost of construction is lower. You've got some infrastructure. But also building in South Africa is just more affordable than it would be in many other places. Is South Africa ready for this kind of project, though? Because to develop that kind of computer and that kind of infrastructure, can the country deliver that at the moment? Well, we certainly can. First of all, we've got quite a good base of high-tech industry as well as construction and engineering industry with an international track record. But we've done two things which have helped us to develop a a really vibrant and world-class community. The first one is that we've been building what we call the Meerkat Telescope, which is a scaled-down version of the Square Kilometre Array. It will have 64 dishes instead of a couple of thousand of them, It'll be on the same site in the Karoo. We built the first seven dishes, and we're commissioning that as a prototype. Then going with that, we've developed a a big bursary and grants program to strengthen our universities. So we have five research chairs in our universities. We've had 117 PhD and MSc students in engineering and astronomy, We've got about 100 undergraduates in physics and engineering. We're training technicians and artisans. One of the things which has become clear is that the 100 or so young engineers and scientists who directly work on the project, now I'm excluding the ones in the university, are amongst the best engineers and scientists in the world, and that has been recognised by the rest of the SKA International Consortium. And if it does go South Africa's way... What will this mean to the country if you get this? I think it'll be very important for us. First of all, it'll change the way we see ourselves, that we can be a centre for science and astronomy. And one of government's objectives from 1996 is for Southern Africa to be a centre of astronomy. The other thing is I think it'll change the way the world sees us. We're already seeing a lot of very good academics and researchers wanting to come to South Africa to work on the Meerkat And that wasn't so easy a few years back. If we have the SKA in Africa, we'll have more of those people coming, and that will strengthen our innovation system, our universities, and it will just strengthen the whole capability in these high-tech and scientific areas. And what are the really big questions that you're going to answer with this? The first one, I think, is that people would like to understand dark energy better. Why is the universe expanding faster and faster? What is the large-scale structure of the universe? It has voids in it, bubbles. How do the bubbles originate? 
what has happened to the structure of the universe over the life of the universe. It will enable us to study galaxies and how galaxies form and evolve so that we can understand better what dark matter is. Both dark energy and dark matter are known to be there because we can see their effects, but we don't know what they are. So those are very interesting challenges. Then it will test Einstein's theory of gravitation by enabling us to look for gravitational waves, by enabling us to study what happens very close to black holes. It'll look for protoplanets. These are all very exciting questions. Bernie Fanneroff talking to Chris Smith at the South African High Commission this week. Regardless which country, the SKA is planned to start construction in 2016 and should be fully operational by 2024. So it'll be very exciting to see if that happens and if it does, the results that they start getting. Porous molecules, which are useful in a range of applications, including separating chemicals and catalyzing reactions, may be designed on demand thanks to a new method published in the journal Nature this week. Molecules which have well-defined porosity and well-understood activity, now this includes zeolites and things called metal organic frameworks or MOFs, play important roles in many different chemical processes. MOFs have been touted as a safe solution to hydrogen storage due to their ability to absorb enormous amounts of gas on their surfaces, but they're also useful in water purification and as molecular traps in order to allow us to study molecules. But their production, when we make them, it often distributes the functionality fairly randomly between the pores, and this places an upper limit on their use. Professor Andrew Cooper at the University of Liverpool, working with groups at University College London and Cambridge University, has developed a method for modelling nanoporous molecular frameworks with atomic precision and then producing them from modular components. So almost like Lego, in a way. Cooper and colleagues use a lock and key assembly technique, mixing porous organic cage molecules and then allowing them to self-assemble. They can accurately model and predict how these molecular modules will mix, meaning specific functionality can be computer-designed. One of the advantages of this technique is that the molecules are soluble. Now, this means that once the constituent pore modules are synthesised... Researchers need only mix up these modules in a solution, allow them to just build themselves to self-assemble, and then they remove the solvent and you have your porous molecule. The researchers have put their method to the test and they have produced four bespoke molecular cages and they've confirmed their structure experimentally. And this, they say, opens the way for in silico production of structure and properties for new candidate porous materials based solely on two-dimensional chemical sketches. And this allows design by computational selection. So this would mean that you could put a catalytic site at some point in your pores... And then enhance the catalytic effect, you could have a huge surface area and every little pore would have a little bit of catalyst or a little bit of reactant in there and you'd have a very efficient system. And also it means that you can control where the functional bits are, where your catalyst is within the pore. And that in in turn may allow you to more precisely control that catalysis and more precisely control the way that, say, these materials actually filter different molecules. It's it's slightly complicated stuff, but actually the range of applications are, are enormous. It's very exciting. Fascinating. Now for something slightly different. Ancient reptiles are inspiring aircraft designers. 
Now, although for most large aircraft and airliners, being able to change direction very quickly isn't usually important, otherwise everyone throws up. As unmanned aerial vehicles are getting used more and more, especially in complex urban environments, being able to turn sharply can make a difference between carrying on your mission or ending up splattered against a wall. A very productive seam of ideas for engineers in the past has been biomimetics, copying ideas from living things. This has given us a range of ideas ranging from Velcro to cat's eyes in the road. But Brian Roberts and Rick Lynn from the University of Florida have been taking this strategy one step further. They've been taking ideas from dead creatures, very dead creatures that haven't lived for 65 million years. Pterosaurs to be precise. These were a form of flying reptiles which survived for over 150 million years and included the largest flying animal so far found, which had a wingspan of 40 feet. One striking feature of many of these pterosaurs is that they have large head crests. It's been suggested that these were just for display, but maybe they had some kind of aerodynamic purpose. They look very much like a rudder. So the group wondered if putting your rudder at the front of the plane might be useful. They've done lots of modelling and found that for the same size of rudder at the front of the plane, it should give the plane a 15% smaller turning circle. The problem is you also lose a lot of stability. So they're looking at somehow morphing the rudder, or possibly moving it from front to the back, to get the best of both worlds. So in the future we may see pterosaur-inspired planes flying around our cities, and who knows what else ancient animals and plants might inspire. It's fascinating that this has been inspired by these iconic uh, creatures that you always see in any diorama of dinosaurs. You always see them up in the sky. But has nobody tried this before just by trial and error, just moving the rudder to the front to see what happens? I guess the big problem is the stability, that if the rudder's at the back, it automatically means the plane carries on pointing in roughly the right direction. But if something goes slightly wrong at the front, you need um, then it will suddenly make a sharp corner. So you want to have some kind of feedback system or some cunning control system or this morphing idea to take advantages of it without getting all the disadvantages. <laughs> I wonder if it could also be included in the again, biomimetic designs we see of flapping aircraft. Because rather than just a an aeroplane that's remote controlled, if we have these flapping aircraft that also have this front-mounted rudder, that could give us even more degrees of freedom. Yes, although one of the reasons making flapping aircraft is that they look like birds, so you can spy on people. I think looking like pterodactyls on pterosaurs might not have quite the same advantage. It might be a little bit frightening, I'd imagine, compared <laughs> to seeing what looks like a seagull. Yes. <laughs> And if you would like to follow up on any of the stories that we've covered this week, you can find more information and references online at thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.